So let's proceed straight away to uh, today's speaker, uh, one of our visiting fellows, originally from uh, the uh, Center for Military Studies, uh, University of Copenhagen, uh, has been here with us since, uh, since January um, as a visiting fellow of the Change in Character of War project, um, and is now presenting us the, uh, the results of six months of hard labor, uh, intellectual strife. Um, Dr. Christian Soviet Christensen uh, will speak on imagining NATO past and present futures for the Western Alliance. Well, thank you, thank you, Jan, for the kind introduction, and thank you to all of you for coming. Um, I've been really grateful for being a visiting fellow here for the last uh, almost six months because it has given me the time to to finalize a manuscript, and uh, that manuscript is what I'm going to talk uh, from today. Uh, the manuscript is about what NATO is, and it's about how to understand the end of the Cold War and perhaps NATO's future. So I'm really trying to, to tackle some of the big issues uh, surrounding NATO. Um, the question of what NATO is and the question of NATO's future has, has not been easy questions for academia, at least not for, for political science. Um, in the in the short text uh, advertising the lecture, I refer to two ways of, of answering what NATO is. Is it, according to the famous but unverified quote by Lord Ismay about keeping the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out, is it in that way about a strategic equilibrium, the consequence of national interest falling in line by the geopolitical realities materializing themselves after the Second World War? Or, alternatively, is NATO the expression of an enduring Western political community, perhaps even a secu security community, where, in the famous words of Karl Deutsch, war becomes unthinkable? Both of these are academic conceptions of what NATO is, but they are equally political concepts. They're political imaginations that foresee what NATO is and what it can become. And in the following, I'll try to investigate how NATO could be imagined in its past and if that can help understand the enigma of the end of the Cold War for NATO and understand how NATO does become what it is today. In 1989, Europe and the world celebrated the end of the Cold War, and so did NATO, because as the wall crumbled, NATO could celebrate its own 40 years anniversary and could congratulate it on itself on the role it played in contributing to the end of the Cold War, the victorious end of the Cold War. But the end of the Cold War did not mean the end of NATO. It had not played out its role, contrary to both academic expectations and political prophecy. NATO did not fade away as its adversary collapsed. NATO did not behave as could be expected of an alliance. It did not turn into an irrelevant and empty shell in a world that witnessed a new world order that was radically different from the post-World War II order. NATO did not, as predicted, turn into a cenotaph of the previous age, even in the face of radical change. Unpredictably, NATO remained both relevant and remained central to both European and American security, and who could have imagined in 1989 that NATO today would consist of 28 members, that it would have conducted crisis management in the Balkans, who 
could have imagined that it even would exist to celebrate its 60th anniversary. Who indeed could have imagined that NATO would be engaged in long and bloody military operations in places so far away as Afghanistan, an area so far away from Europe, and so much out of area that, in the words of Jakob de Hobschäfer, the previous Secretary General, it had never before appeared on the Alliance horizon. How to understand these changes and how to understand this conceptual and geographical change of horizon? How NATO came to it present in many ways remains an enigma. It's difficult to understand how it actually managed to do what it has already done. It is difficult to come to terms with what it is. Normally, the question of who, who, would, who would have imagined is, is just a phrase, it's a manner of speaking, but I think, I think it can be more than that. I think it can also be a, a relevant research question. Um, how NATO's future could be imagined, I would argue, is actually important to answer how NATO became what it is today. And these initial thoughts lead me to a, a four-point plan for what I'm going to say today. First, I'll outline a bit more in detail my argument about how we can get to know what NATO is, how we can come to terms with what it is. I will, in that relation, state why out-of-area why out-of-area problems is, is important and is significant to investigate. I will state why the West is important and why it is important to look historically at NATO. I'll present the argument that NATO's present is made possible by and can be understood by looking at past political imaginations of its own future. Secondly, I engage the history of NATO's political imaginations. What are out-of-area problems and why look at them? During the Cold War, NATO constantly struggled by events and actions of its members outside of Europe. France's war in Indochina, the Vietnam War, the Yom Kippur War, the Suez Crisis, as well as the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, are all various points in NATO history that question what NATO is and what it can become. And in attempting to manage these always problematic issues outside of Europe and outside the logic of the Cold War, a political imagination develops in NATO, seeing NATO and its future, even its, its true becoming, as being more than an alliance. It sees NATO as the expression of a Western community, and the effect of this discourse is that the end of the Cold War can become a moment of becoming. The end of the Cold War is not only a threat, or fundamental challenge to NATO, it can equally be seen as a moment of fundamental opportunity to realize NATO's true being as imagined during the Cold War, that NATO can now finally become more than an alliance. That is basically my, my empirical claim, and with that empirical claim, I thirdly return to more theoretical questions about how to conceptualize NATO and how to view it in relationship to the West, which leads me to my Final and fourth point, the conclusion. What can this history actually tell us, if anything, about the future of NATO? Starting with the argument. One of the great puzzles of the history of NATO is how it's managed the end of the Cold War. During the Cold War, NATO was about getting as many tanks as possible, as close as possible to Checkpoint Charlie. It was focused on Europe. During Cold War, anything outside of Europe 
was besides the point, it was not central. And today NATO is about getting as many troops as possible, as far away from Europe as possible. NATO's focus is outside of Europe. The outside is central. Things and issues outside of area, out of area, are pivotal to NATO. To understand NATO, it's necessary to engage this fundamental change, and not least the question of how it was possible. How did NATO become what it is? That leads to a fundamental assumption that NATO is not just what it is. There's no continuous cause that continuously explains what NATO is, that explains its identity. It's neither just a strategic equilibrium of Western security. It's neither just a strategic equilibrium or a Western security community. There's no essential core. NATO, on the contrary, is constantly in the process of becoming. That means that what NATO is must be a historical question. The question is how can we understand how it was possible for NATO to become what it is. Understanding, therefore, what NATO is today requires that we write a history of the present as a Cold State. For NATO, this writing, a history of the present, must be about the end of the Cold War. The overall puzzle in the history of NATO is how to understand how NATO action and NATO being after the end of the Cold War was possible. How was it imaginable to go from Checkpoint Charlie to Musakela, to go from the Fulda Gap to Benghazi? Answering that requires that we treat the end of the Cold War precisely not as a fundamental break. Doing that makes the end of the Cold War and its effects on what NATO could become inexplicable. We cannot explain anything. The end of the Cold War becomes an interregnum, fundamentally separating the past from the present, making the two independent. It leaves us with an empty concept of change. If, on the other hand, we wish to understand change, I think we must investigate and denaturalize apparent continuity during the Cold War, to investigate how NATO's being after the end of the Cold War is conditioned on Cold War imaginations, on Cold War change, on Cold War discontinuities. These discontinuities is what I empirically investigate, and I try to put some content in the concept of change. With that, I can restate the argument shortly to become that NATO today is made possible by past imaginations of its future. These Cold War imaginations can be investigated by empirically analyzing how NATO, in relation to out-of-area problems, was represented in an intimate and symbiotic relationship with something called the West. How is that possible? That's an empirical and historical question, and the history is what I turn to now. I'll do four things. I'll outline what out-of-area history is in general, and I'll show two periods during the Cold War where, in relation to out-of-area history, out-of-area issues, NATO is, is reimagined, imagined anew. Thirdly, I'll summarize the changes that these bring to NATO, these new imaginations make possible. And finally, I'll show how these imaginations partook in making NATO possible after the end of the Cold War. First, out of area in general. During the Cold War, NATO never acted, never acted out of area. It never acted out of Europe because security issues outside of Europe were always problematic. They removed the focus from the central task of NATO, the defense against the Soviet Union. Out of area issues should thus be kept off NATO's agenda when the Allies met and discussed security issues. Because these issues would always create division 
within nature, they could in fact spell the end of nature. Therefore, the traditional story goes, nature continuously stayed, confined to Cold War issues. NATO, in the words of Elizabeth Sherwood, kept its eye on the ball in Europe, and out-of-era problems were always problematic, as they showed where NATO did not work. They showed the limits of responsibility between its members, the limits of alliance. They showed, in short, what NATO was not. However, the limits is where new life can be imagined, and there's just more to this story, in my mind, than and there's more to this story than continuity. Because constantly, throughout the Cold War, there were plans, there were proposals, there were strategies for, for trying to make it possible to engage NATO outside of Europe. And I think these plans show that there was a constant pressure for making NATO into something it was not. And looking at these plans, these imaginations of what NATO should and could perhaps become show that the continuous continuity of the Cold War sort of dissolves itself. Things actually did happen, and the apparent non-story of out-of-air issues is not the whole story. And following, I'll show how changes and events in NATO during the Cold War made it possible to imagine alternate futures for NATO, and how this was done by powerful actors speaking on behalf of the Alliance. On the 5th of March 1953, Joseph Stalin dies. And with his death, one of the many changes during the Cold War that destabilizes the politics and the political concepts and agreements upon which NATO existence is based, on which NATO's, on which NATO's Western strategic consensus is based. With Stalin's death and an emanating uh, peaceful coexistence from the Kremlin, what is the state no longer the danger of an immediate Soviet onslaught in Europe, but a permanent state of generalized confrontation and uncertain, but certainly dangerous future? As stated by Eisenhower in 1956, three years ago, human freedom was under direct assault. Fear of global war of a nuclear holocaust darkened the future. Today, three years later, we have reason for a cautious hope that a new, a fruitful, a peaceful era for mankind can emerge. But on the other hand, hope is not certainty. And as Secretary General Lord Ismay reminds us, the bear smiles, but let us remember that he's an animal that can kill you with a hug. So hoping for peace can itself be dangerous. One must not be misled by the smiling bear at the task for the rest, for NATO is to conceive and maintain a strategy that will ensure coherence and work even According to John Foster Dulles, the threat we face is not one that can be adequately dealt with on an emergency basis. It is a threat that may long persist. And this long persisting threat is in, in itself a threat to NATO because conventional wisdom about alliances tells us that unity dissolves in the face of, an, an, of, a face of a diffused threat. The challenge then is to maintain a permanent, coherent, and geographically limited alliance in the face of a changing, diffuse, non-military, and perhaps even global threat. As the immediate and common threat lessens, individual allies will be tempted to follow individual interests, ultimately risking the alliance. And in 56, this prophecy from conventional alliance theory, conventional wisdom, seems to be coming true as the United States heavy-handedly stops 
the French-English invasion in Egypt, actually in the midst of battle. In the face of a lessened Soviet threat, not even the old wartime allies can retain unity. The Suez Crisis, the most famous of out-of-area crises, shows the limits of alliance. It shows the limits of NATO. As claimed by Secretary General Paul-Henri Spark, it has shown that the Atlantic Alliance failed to function, and the crisis, in fact, again according to Spark, left the West in disarray. Inside unity cannot, it seems, be maintained in the face of outside disunity. But something has to be done. The failures must be amended. NATO must be reimagined if it's to have faced this long-haul and future crisis out of area that could be expected in relation to the Cold War. The time has come, again according to John Foster Dulles, to turn NATO into the totality of its meaning. And the totality of NATO's meaning is, in short, that it is not an alliance. It is more than an alliance. Let no one think, argues Lord Ismay, that the North Atlantic Treaty is merely a temporary alliance which has been forced on us by compulsion of external threat. It is much more than that, much, much more. NATO, according to Lord Ismay, in short, is more than an alliance. But what is this more than? It is the real-life manifestation of a political community, of a Western political community. NATO, it is widely argued, either is or will be proof that there in world politics exists a community of Western nations. North Atlantic Treaty holds, again according to Lord Ismay, that the North Atlantic community should develop into a true family of nations thinking together, acting together, and helping each other over the whole field of international relations. So this promise, and not the immediate defense against the Soviet Union, is the true meaning of NATO. That is the totality of its meaning. And NATO, thus imagined, holds the promise of Western transcendence. NATO holds the key to a future Western utopia where the problems of the present will be solved. Otherwise, if this is not to happen, the consequence, again according to Dulles, may be that the West may destroy itself. This means that NATO is then important, not just because it guards against the Soviet Union in the future, in the present, sorry. It is important because it's the tool that will realize a future in which a true family, a true community comes into being. NATO secures the moment of future Western transcendence. And when this transcendence happens, NATO and the West will not be jeopardized by out-of-area problems because when becoming the genuine expression of this community, NATO will be able to act in unison in the whole field of international relations. So because NATO in this political imagination is not an alliance, it is not doomed to face the fate of past alliances. It, on the contrary, has the power, again, according to Bonhoeffer Spark, to prove the old concept of geographically limited alliance outmoded so NATO's future in the 1950s is not to be found in its past because NATO in itself holds the promise to radically break away from the past. NATO becomes imagined as a new beginning. According to President Eisenhower, it has grown into a powerful security community. Something new and important has happened. And according to Paul-Henri Spark, this community spirit which is beginning to appear within the Atlantic Alliance, 
is probably the most important event which has occurred in our present era. So this is the promise of NATO, to be more than an alliance, to be where the West develops. But this promise is continuously a promise of the future, and that is why NATO should be developed and be defended even in the face of a diffuse Soviet threat and serious out-of-era crisis, because NATO promises to overcome both the Soviet problems and out-of-era problems. This never happens, of course, during the Cold War. Out-of-era problems remain problematic, but NATO is continuously imagined as that which, when finally developed into its true meaning, will overcome the present. So, in the 50s, NATO could be imagined as that which would bring at a future point in time, transcendence, and radically transform international relations. It could be more than an alliance in the 50s, as it guards its own promise of Western deliverance in the long haul during the Cold War. But what when the Cold War ends? What when NATO faces the end of the Cold War? This is the second, second instance of NATO being reimagined, because According to Raymond Aron, in 1974, and I quote, not only the Cold War, but the entire post-war order came to an end with Nixon's first term. It was, as the 1960s came to an end, in fact, widely believed that the world was witnessing the end of the Cold War. George Kennan, the godfather of American Cold War diplomacy, in fact, labeled an, an essay in 1972 called after the end of the American foreign policy after the end of the Cold War. The Cold War was ending, and according to Richard Nixon, the world was entering into an era of negotiation. So the question is, what is the use of a post-war era alliance when the post-war era is over? What is the use of a Cold War alliance when the Cold War is over? As with the signs of peaceful coexistence in the 50s, the era of detente fundamentally questions and challenges NATO. NATO is challenged by science of peace and science of cooperation, and that again requires an open up for new imagination of what NATO is. And again, the answer is to imagine NATO as more than just a military alliance. In 67, NATO commissions a study on its own future, what was later to be known as the Amel Report, and that report imagines a future for NATO, central even in the face of threatening peace. In short, the report argues that, and I quote from the report, military security and a policy of detente are not contradictory, but complementary. So NATO in this report is not a relic of the post-war era. On the contrary, and I quote again, the ultimate purpose of the alliance is to achieve a just and lasting peaceful order in Europe. NATO's raison d'etre, NATO's identity, is shifted from being about defense to being about peace. And the time is thus not the end of NATO. On the contrary, it is in NATO that the process of peace, that the management of the time will take place. NATO is then not a relic, but central for realizing new and peaceful era. NATO becomes not a hindrance to Western transcendence into peace. NATO becomes imagined as central in making possible the peaceful time in these new times after the Cold War. But again, as before, problems lurk in the outside. And as the Hamel report plainly states, the North Atlantic Treaty area 
cannot be treated in isolation from the rest of the world. Crisis a conflict arising outside the area may impair its security. And it did indeed impair on the security of NATO. The Vietnam War in general, as well as lack of consultation and coordination, the lack of genuine community in relation to the Yom Kippur War impair on NATO, the unity necessary to manage the town in Europe is threatened by issues out of area. Out of area problems threaten the visions of the peaceful future secured by NATO. So the Western transcendence making out of area problems unproblematic has not yet arrived in the imagined new times of peace during the taunt NATO. And the West are still, as argued by Henry Kissinger in 1973, in need of a fresh act of creation to lay the basis for a new era of creativity in the West. The act of Western creativity making detente and peace possible is still imagined as a moment of transcendence that will bring the West into its true existence and NATO into the totality of its meaning that will make it possible for the West embodied in NATO to manage challenges both inside and outside of Europe. But this is still a thing of the future, and the future is still constantly jeopardized by issues outside of Europe. The moment of transcendence that will make NATO action outside of Europe possible is constantly awaited during the Cold War. Sparks community of spirit, community spirit does not materialize. NATO is not brought into the totality of its meaning, and the realization of Western utopia is always not there yet. So taken together, these two periods show that central change in what NATO is actually do take place in the political imagination of central decision makers during the Cold War. NATO is imagined differently, and these differences in imagination support the argument that the end of the Cold War can be understood in NATO's past. So summing up from these two empirical stories, what can we say about NATO during Cold War? Well, we, first, NATO is never just an alliance. It is never just one thing. It is constantly imagined as more than an alliance. Secondly, NATO is about the future. NATO is about securing a radically different and utopian Western future as much as it is about managing the Cold War present. Which means, thirdly, that NATO is important without the Cold War. NATO is not just about defense, it is equally about peace, and it's about managing a peaceful order in Europe, even when the Cold War was imagined to, ending, to be ending in the 70s. Fourthly, NATO is about the West. NATO is imagined important because it's a real-life representation of the West. NATO defends and represents the exist existence of a political community, a Western political subject. And fifth, and finally, the outside is significant. It is when joint NATO action, also outside the confines of Europe and outside the conceptual confines of the Cold War, that it's possible that this Western subject, this Western family of nation, emerges. Therefore, out-of-area problems are problems that constantly have to be overcome, because overcoming them signifies the moment of transcendence. Now, this political imagination of NATO and NATO's future is, of course, only one, only one amongst many. It can still be imagined as a strategic equilibrium, managing the Germans and the 
Americans and the Russians alike. But the point is that it makes it possible to make sense of the Cold War and NATO's role in a particular way. The end of the Cold War had first been imagined before it ended. Knowledge making sense of it was available. Knowledge that at the same time established a future for NATO. NATO in a way thus knew what it had to expect when the Cold War ended. So what can we know from this story about NATO and the end of the Cold War? It tells us that the end of the Cold War, because of these imaginations, could be understood not just as a challenge to NATO. The end of the Cold War was also a moment of opportunity. It's a moment of opportunity for finally bringing NATO into the totality of its meaning as envisioned by Dulles 40 years earlier. NATO was not an alliance, it was a powerful security community, expressing the existence of the Western subjectivity in world politics. And now, liberated from the Cold War, NATO and the West could arrive at the long-awaited, long-imagined moment of transcendence. In that sense, past, present and future come together in the moment when NATO, in unity, can manage a peaceful order, both inside and outside its traditional area. It can now, it could be imagined, finally go out of area. NATO, in fact, has to go out of area because that validates the existence of the West and NATO's close relation to it. NATO has, as the Cold War ends, in the now famous words of the American senator Richard Lugar, to go out of area or go out of business. And that, as we know, is what happened. NATO, increasingly, after the Cold War, has been about breaking its own boundaries. Its identity lies in being able to manage global security increasingly and being engaged increasingly in Afghanistan. And in short, this is how the move from Checkpoint Charlie to Musakala became possible. Political imaginations of what NATO was related to out of area issues and visions of the West during the Cold War made NATO possible at the end of the Cold War. In that sense, NATO was not a blank slate upon which events of the present are constantly able to write themselves on. Continuity made change and the end of the Cold War possible. This then sort of concludes the, the empirical part. Who would have imagined that NATO had a future after the end of the Cold War? Well, the empirical history showed that somebody actually did imagine. These imaginations partook in producing the actual future NATO has. So now follows some theoretical points, because what does this story tell us conceptually about NATO, and how can we understand its relationship with the West? On the question of what NATO is, it's of course a, a central empirical and, and theoretical question, and the answer is that it is never just one thing. It is never just a Western community and never just an alliance. And instead of trying to answer what it is, we must analyze how it becomes what it is. It's not just a firm and solid being. It, it itself, its past and its future, is constantly spoken into being. Therefore, I would argue that, that identity, NATO identity, is a matter of its history. Being is a matter of becoming. And being is always, therefore, uncertain and always incomplete, and it's always in relation to something else. In short, NATO is what it is, or becomes what it is, 
by being historically represented in relation to its others and in relation to its outsides. This means that when analyzing and asking what NATO is, that question should be kept analytically open, as little as possible should be, supposed, should be presupposed, because otherwise one can risk objectifying NATO identity. One risks making it one where, in fact, there were no oneness. How NATO could become something is always a consequence of complicated, discursive processes containing various representation of NATO in relation to its various others. NATO is not just something in relation to the Soviet other, it's not just something in relation to its out-of-area problems, and it's not just something in relation to its West, to its Western other. But still, this is where change happened. I would claim the argument that, that discourse making NATO possible is largely NATO's past discourse on its own future. This is what makes new political strategies logical, this is what makes them rational, and this is what makes them expectedly realizable. And this process takes place in largely public transatlantic deliberations on what NATO is and what it can become. Presidents, prime ministers, secretary generals, and ministers of defense, together with sometimes columnists, commentators, and especially NATO's own, communicates, imagine what NATO is. They speak legitimately on NATO's behalf, and they have the power to be heard. And when they speak about what NATO is and can become, they often speak of it in a relationship with the West. They imagine that NATO is or can become constantly more than an alliance. They expect it to be more than an alliance. That it express or should express the existence of a Western community. And therefore, investigating historically how these discourses develop, change, and are modified make it possible to tell a history of change, to investigate how NATO continuously becomes what it is, makes it possible to trace change in continuity. It makes it possible to change, to trace how the historical emergence of the conditions of possibility for the present emerges. It makes it possible to write a history of the present. NATO today is made possible by past imaginations of its future. And these past imaginations can be investigated by analyzing empirically how NATO, in relation to out-of-area issues, to sum up, was represented as in an intimate relationship with something called the West. So that leads to my fourth and final point, which is my conclusions. What about NATO and what about its future? What can we say about its future? Well, first of all, by looking at its history, we can certainly state that its future will be uncertain. The nature's future will be difficult, if not impossible, to predict. It will change, but precisely how it will change is impossible to say. NATO's current future, it is commonly stated, depends on its operation in Afghanistan, on how NATO managed to actually go out of area in a very serious way. It's commonly stated that that NATO will make or break in Afghanistan, that its futures on the line. If NATO cannot succeed in Afghanistan, and in the words of, for instance, Peter McKay, the Canadian Minister of Defense, if NATO cannot there contribute to the building, to building security for the larger international community, then what is NATO for? And in that sense, Afghanistan is important for NATO. It questions 
NATO identity. It questions what NATO is for. Thus, the future. NATO is indeed to be found in Afghanistan, but on the other hand, failure in Afghanistan, my mind, will not mean the end of NATO, because NATO has failed before. And failures in the past have created a momentum for change, a momentum for reimagination. For reimagination what NATO is and what it should and could become. Because NATO depends not only on Afghanistan, it depends on instead on being able to represent itself as a manifestation of a larger community. A community that is sometimes called the West, sometimes it's called the transatlantic community, sometimes it is called the community of values, sometimes it's called a security community, a Western security community. Never mind the terms. The point is that failure in Afghanistan could as previous failures have been, be ascribed to the fact that this community and the community spirit that Spark talked about is not there yet, that it has not been developed yet, that NATO has not yet been brought into the totality of its meaning, as John Foster Dulles imagined that it would be in the 50s. Failure in Afghanistan does not spell the end of NATO. Failure in Afghanistan will spell a new beginning, because NATO in some depends on defending and representing and reimagining itself as something related to the West. And as long as the, the West, whatever that is, exists and is threatened, both on its inside and on its outside, there exists a future for NATO. As long as the West in political discourse can be argued as collapsing, as declining, as ending, as in austerity, as in its most serious crisis ever, as it has repeatedly been, there will be a future for NATO, constantly trying to defend and develop the West into its still-awaited moment of true and final transcendence. In conclusion, NATO's future is imagined and made certain in continued Western uncertainty. Thank you very much. I hope you have some questions.